I'm very excited to be speaking to my next guest. He is one of the world's most experienced Vatican journalists, having reported from Rome on the Vatican for 36 years. He's the founder and editor of Inside the Vatican magazine and has just released a book covering Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano, analyzing the Archbishop's testimonies and with personal interviews about this great hero of the Church in our day. In all of the world, there is one man most suited to be able to corroborate at least some of what Archbishop Vigano has said and revealed. Someone who has been inside the Vatican for 36 years, who has interviewed and spoken with at length Popes John Paul II and Benedict, countless cardinals and curial officials, a man who is gifted with a great intelligence, graduating with highest honors from Harvard and Yale, someone who has dared to put his whole career on the line by releasing this book about Archbishop Vigano. Our next guest for this episode of The John Henry Weston Show is Dr. Robert Moynihan. Stay tuned. Before we begin, I need to let you know that LifeSite has been hit by Google, Facebook, and Twitter. The big tech giants are trying to shut us down, to stop our news from revealing the truth about what's happening in our world today. Soon, I'm sure, the only way to reach you will be via direct email. So please click on the link below this video to subscribe directly to receive LifeSite news via email so that the big tech giants won't be able to censor your access to the truth. Dr. Moynihan, welcome to the John Henry Weston Show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, John Henry, for having me. Let's begin, as we always do, with the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Dr. Moynihan, it is a great honor and pleasure for me to be speaking with you. Uh, we spoke once in the Vatican in 2014, I believe it was, um, and that was a great pleasure too. You are a man of great distinction, having reported for decades now on what's been going on inside the Vatican. Welcome. Well, thank you very much. It's uh, about half my life. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, that's partially why uh, it's so fascinating that you have now released this book, Finding Vigano, which our readers can look down at the bottom of this video and find how to get that uh, from 10 books. Just an incredible book. But it's, it's actually most striking that this has come from you. Such a distinguished journalist with so many decades of work inside the Vatican, quite literally. You know probably more about inside the Vatican than most of the prelates inside the Vatican right now. But in the preface of the book, there is right away a challenge mentioned by Tan Books and also by Tan of yourself that you were cautioned not to do this. If you can explain for us what caution that might have been and what effect that might have had. There were a number of Vatican officials and monsignors who said to me, think over very carefully whether you should simply not stop both writing letters about Archbishop Vigano, therefore giving him a platform for his thought and writing a book about him 
therefore, in a sense, lending a certain weight and credibility to everything that he has said. And I said, I will take into consideration your words, but I wish to work in such a way that what the Archbishop has said can be better understood, put into context, that the man who has said these things can be better understood. And I do not think that we can move forward unless we take the time and effort to understand such things and then sift them in the most thoughtful way, in the most charitable way, to come to reasonable conclusions about the crisis in our church, the causes of that crisis, and the best way forward. And therefore, I went ahead. I did not stop the publication. There were even some considerations for doing that. And this took its toll on me, and I lost quite a bit of weight. <laughs> I'm thin to begin with. So the winds of conflict and division have buffeted also me and my heart. And what I have arrived at is the conclusion that I need to stay focused and centered on Christ, who saved us, saves me. I'm imperfect. I would say Archbishop Bigano is imperfect. I admire him very much, and I know many of our listeners very much admire him. I also recognize, and I've met and known John Paul II, now canonized, St. John Paul II, who had difficulties in the Roman Curia, had difficulties guiding the church, stood between the United States and Russia as he attempted to bring dignity back to his native and, in a sense, conquered Poland, but not sending, going out on all sorts of... Excuse me. I am so sorry. I'm going to turn this off, and uh, I should have done so before. The um, St. John Paul II was criticized for some of his decisions and some of his, in a sense, lack of government. He traveled around the world, and Vatican officials would say to me, even at the time, he is not governing his church. He should stay here in Rome and follow very carefully the various activities of the Curia and watch over, like a father, a good father, his family, his household. So this is a great saint, but he had critics. Mm -hmm. Benedict XVI, a very holy man, I knew better than I knew John Paul II. I talked with him many times, many interviews, many conversations, sometimes walked through Borgo Pio, I would say, hi, may I walk a few steps with you? He says, sure, walk with me. I'm talking about the 1990s when he was still a cardinal. Mm-hmm. But he now is being criticized and has always been criticized. The curial officials would say, oh, Benedict, he doesn't 
understand one thing. And I said, what's that? Power. Hmm. I said, well, maybe that's a good thing. And they said, well, in this case, invested as the vicar of Christ with guiding a church of more than a billion people, he's spending his time writing about Christ. Hmm. He's not spending his time governing the church. Hmm. But that was perhaps the greatest contribution he could give. Mm-hmm. Now we have Pope Francis, whose heart is for the poor. He grew up, was a young boy in Buenos Aires. He saw the ghettos and barrios. There's no doubt that he feels deeply the weight on poor people of not having enough money to pay the rent at the end of the month of being part of a system which can be cruel, can take away a house. So this tended in his life to direct him towards this Jesuit principle of being a man for others, looking at social justice, never being so deeply trained and deeply impressed by the value of doctrinal clarity in giving us a direction for our hearts and minds. So we have this particular man with his particular frailties. And we have Archbishop Vigano. I felt that his story needed to be told, and I'm still telling it. I'm working on a second book. Mm-hmm. Because it's the journey also of another soul a very talented, intelligent Italian from a classic Italian family praying the rosary, working hard in that Northern Italy, which produces so many fine products, high quality products. Italy is famous, that triangle between Milan, Venice, Parma, down to Bologna, that northern Italy, which in the Renaissance produced so many great scholars and artists. Up uh, in Vigano's life, he grew up, he entered the service of the church, as did his brother Lorenzo. And already as a young seminarian, he saw part of the Second Vatican Council. He was in Rome. And then in the late 60s, he was a young auxiliary in a parish in Pavia in northern Italy. And he saw the trends and the currents in an Italy which 25 years earlier had been under Mussolini and gone through the Second World War, had been fascist. The Italians have a rich culture and the profound character to be sensitive to consider God in nature and in art and in sacraments, but also to recognize that time, a decade, a half a century, a century, keeps passing by. And they bring this to the Roman Curia in a good way, eternal Rome. All things pass and change. Uh, One pope finishes, another is made. They say they use that phrase. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a very humane 
attitude. And the strange thing is even their communists are more humane than most communists, although they can have some very ideological mm-hmm. communists. Mm-hmm. But it's always true that handling sacred things can be dangerous for human beings. Mm-hmm. Jesus was always castigating the scribes and Pharisees who were punctilious about following the law, who were punctilious about not breaking the commandments, following all of them. For why did he criticize? Because they lost the underlying spirit of love of God and love of neighbor, which he said, these are the two great commandments. Because even as they carried out commandment after commandment, their hearts had grown cold and closed. And scripture repeatedly says, what does God require? A contrite heart. Mm -hmm. And knowing that we are all sinners, it's part of our doctrine that when we judge, and we judge rightly according to God's law, we nevertheless must leave a lot up to him. We must leave the punishment often up to him. And as we start to take sacred things and take control, and as the church has tried to do that, it risks becoming pharisaical. It risks becoming rigoristic. And this brings us to the present crisis we face today. We must remain faithful to Christ. We have a church that is his bride. We have a hierarchy that's been entrusted to carry on. We have a papacy, the successor of Christ. I started these few minutes ago by describing strengths and weaknesses in great popes like John Paul II and Benedict, whom I knew personally. I still know Benedict, who is now being criticized again for... uh, for his actions with regard to a, a community of about 800 or so members called Integrierte Gemeinde. I knew members of the community. I would see them walking in the streets of Rome. And I knew, again, it's a perfect example. These people wanted to devote themselves to God. Mm-hmm. They wanted to follow through in their daily lives and make it integrated, integrierte, integrated life, not just church on Sunday and secular life all week, but integrated life. But as you follow that path, you say, now I have to integrate now. I'm going to get married, not get married. Maybe I talk to my spiritual advisor. Spiritual advisor said, no, don't marry that person. From our perspective, this is too much. This is giving too much authority and danger of abuse, danger of psychological and spiritual abuse. So we Americans, we want freedom. We do have a deep love of God, and we want to have our freedom be in God's service. This community went forward. Now there's coming reports in the German press, and LifeSite has just published something, Mm -hmm. saying that Benedict was lax in guarding the freedom and and the faith of these little ones. And he himself, I believe, is saying, yes, I was. I was lax. Mm-hmm. I want, and, but these are, okay. So I've covered the Vatican, and I have suffered by seeing men 
including these popes, to whom I had great devotion, do things and say things, Assisi hesitating over, Benedict hesitated for two years before com committing, uh, publishing the most important document of his pontificate, mm. Sumorum Pontificum oh. on July 7th, 2007. Seven, mm. seven, seven. Mm -hmm. So you can easily remember. Yeah. He said, the old liturgy cannot be regarded as evil, as wrong, because for centuries it was prayed in the church by great saints and by ordinary washerwomen, mm -hmm. grandmothers and, and, and little children, who would pray and understand the holiness and awesomeness of God and the tenderness of forgiveness, and therefore carry forward this life of the soul, which... We must do so in our time, but Benedict said we, we can do it by recognizing the old liturgy and accepting that we have this Novus Ordo, the new order. Mm -hmm. These are profound questions. We could discuss just that for hours, but yeah. Benedict hesitated to do this because people, bishops and cardinals were flying into Rome saying, don't do it. Hmm. Don't do it. You, you just stick with the with the Vatican II path, don't take a step backwards. People will misunderstand. People will be rigidly attached. And we will lose that sense of openness that we've been trying to mm. cultivate. And he listened for a long time. How are we to judge that? But he made the decision. I watched year after year. One of the great experiences was talking just, it must have been 1994 with Cardinal Angelo Sodano, Secretary of State, famous now, still alive. Mm -hmm. He was the one who responded to Pope Benedict that morning on February 11th when Benedict resigned. And Sodano stands up and says, oh, our hearts were burning within us as we listened to your word. Mm -hmm. But he didn't, he didn't evaluate what Benedict had said in any way. But Sudano and uh, next to him was Sandri. I saw both of them. And I said, I had just had dinner with uh, Eric von Saventham and Michael Davies, hmm. who were very interested in the old liturgy and in the traditional liturgical ways. Michael Davies, famous for his mm -hmm. books on uh, likening the new order to some aspects of Cranmer's Mass. Mm -hmm the Protestant Reformation in England. So those two, Eric and Michael, said it's been decided that there will be permission granted to have altar girls throughout the church. Mm -hmm. And this had been something people had been hesitating on because Chiariceto, the altar boy, was considered in some way the very first step toward becoming a deacon and then a priest and then a bishop. It was a first tiny step towards clerical life, towards sacramental consecration as a priest. So they thought, the more conservative Catholics thought this is a dangerous step because we're going to introduce young girls into the concept of starting out on that path as well. And then if we don't go through with that, they'll be disappointed. 
But if we go in that direction, we will find a real crisis in our understanding of the complementarity of the male and the female, mm-hmm. two different roles with equal dignity, Absolutely. equal dignity of soul. But Sudano and Sandri, I had already had an appointment to ask about this matter because at that time everyone was rumoring that. And um, Sudano said, well, it's being discussed but it will be no problem. You Americans are so concerned about this because you're so right wing. We Italians <laughs> regard this as a, a sort of matter of style and it's just kind of us to invite the girls to join the boys in the celebration of the liturgy. Hmm. He did not have a single inkling in what he said to me of any of what I just described of this being perhaps a deception, or in some way a confusion. No, he was not concerned. I then had a meeting by chance that same week with Cardinal Ratzinger. And I said to him, there's a lot of rumors going around they're going to approve this uh, altar girls, the Kerikette, the female altar servers. And he said, well, not yet, because... It didn't yet come across my desk. Hmm. And I haven't given my judgment or my prohibition. Hmm. The next wow. morning, the Vatican Press Office announced that it had been approved. Oh, gosh. And I then said, what does this mean? It means Ratzinger didn't make this decision. Wow. This came from the Secretary of State. Oh, my goodness. This is one of many examples of what, watching how the church at that level, at the level of the hierarchy in the Vatican, but also in the entire episcopate functions. Some people have a slot and authority that outweighs and goes beyond their official dossier of what they should be able to handle. There are cross hatching roles in which each congregation has 20 or 30 or 12 cardinals who come to Rome to be part of the council of that congregation. But there's only a few, a handful, interconnected, who wield the greater authority. Hmm. And now the study of who has wielded that authority and on what basis is being made by many people, including people like Taylor Marshall with his book, Infiltration. And we today are trying to decide who is being selected to make the decisions in the church and to what degree can the census fidelium, the sense of the faithful, overcome the, the the true orthodox faith be preserved the faith of the simple can sort of percolate upwards that we can produce priests and bishops and cardinals who will be intransigent in defending the deposit of the defa- of the faith or to what extent has there been a type of trendiness that has filtered into the church, into the seminaries, into the universities, into the hierarchy in general, 
and now into the College of Cardinals and has reached the, the throne of Peter. Hmm. These are the questions I'm wrestling with in the hope of giving clarity and of defending the Bride of Christ, the Church, while at the same time recognizing, as I've repeated twice now, that each person is fallible and has his strengths and weaknesses, including the very popes that we most honor. There you have, in a summary fashion, the dilemma that confronts me. Yeah, yeah. It's an amazing picture you paint. You've you've been given um, what very few on earth have, the opportunity to meet a lot of the figures, to engage with, to converse with a lot of the figures that really have shaped the church over the past 30 years or so. Um, and I'm in that position too, at least as regards Archbishop Vigano. You had the uh, unique opportunity to meet with him, not only once, but frequently over years to discuss these things with him. And he comes across, because he's not been known by many people at all, really, other than the, those in the United States who were the bishops and usually friends of his, and but very few of the laity. But people know him now for his letters and his communications, which might seem very strenuous and strong. Yet in your book, which, by the way, goes through all of his uh, publications, yes, analyzes them, but also, interestingly, goes through your conversations with him. I not I know not the full ones yet. That's coming in the next book. But also, there's some very revealing conversations which give you a glimpse of the man that I think few would possess. I was particularly um, referencing your chapter on Vigano's tears. If you can tell us a little bit about that, because I think that presents a side of the man that few people really know. Well, absolutely, John Henry. And I would say that the critics of Vigano should give at least that space to evaluate some of these aspects before taking a unilateral position. There's There's a development in his thought, a development in his heart. I think it's a fascinating development, and I think we all are learning from what he has passed through. And what is that? It's a type of um, conversion from a man who was a good man and known for his integrity, known for never uh, taking taking the shortcut. He was particularly on financial matters in the Vatican City State, regarded as a man of the utmost honor. Mm-hmm. So that the famous story of, as, is, as, is, as might be under, as is typical in Italy, the Vatican is in Italy, the Vatican is in Rome. The Vatican is a small, tiny state surrounded by Rome. The streets of Rome go right around the walls. You can walk around. It's about a 5K, actually. You could jog a 5K basically from the obelisk in St. Peter's Square, go up the wall, past the Vatican Museums, go to the top where the helicopters land inside the Vatican walls, come down the other side, pass by the Doma Santa Marta where the Pope lives now, come back to the obelisk, and it's almost exactly three points. 
That's Vatican City. Several hundred people live there. Several thousand people live within a mile or five miles and come in and out to the Vatican and then to the buildings near the Vatican, which house the congregations, like the Congregation for Bishops, the Congregation for the Synod. So Vigano was given the position in around the year 2000, and he kept it to 2011 when he was made nuncio, under, first under John Paul and then under Benedict, to follow all the aspects of maintaining the Vatican City State. He was not the mayor. He was the sort of next to the mayor, the top economic guy. So when they brought in the Christmas tree for Christmas time from the Alps on a huge truck, carried it in and set it up, put in a manger scene, they would, the Vatican would pay for the tree and the manger scene. And it got to be expensive. It got to be several hundred thousand dollars, I think 800,000. So then Vigano said, let's examine this as well as many other contracts that the Vatican was engaged in. And he found that he could reduce the contract to 400,000. And he managed in the first year to save millions of dollars for the Vatican, for the church. Mm -hmm. But he made in this process foes, enemies, and he managed somehow to stay ahead of their machinations and their plots against him all through those years, making the Vatican a sleeker and more transparent operation with regard to many of these contracts for the, the furnishing of electricity or all these different things that a city has to agree on. But Pope Benedict had brought in a man at the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith named Archbishop Bertone, who was from Genoa, had been Archbishop in Genoa, which is on that little curve in Northern Italy that heads on to the French Riviera. Mm -hmm. It's a Northern Italian city, very proud city, narrow little medieval streets, but right next to the coast, beautiful. And Bertone stayed on after Benedict became Pope and was made Secretary of State. But Bertone was not from the Vatican diplomatic corps nor from the curial sort of caste that grew up inside the system. He was in a way a figure who parachuted in from the North and he had all sorts of friendships and interests. Benedict was writing his books and he had by his side another German, Archbishop Genswein. And he trusted Bertone, said, you handle the Curia as my Secretary of State. People started to come to him and said, there's some problems here and there. There's, people are cutting some corners. There's some corruption. And you probably should change this man. But Benedict trusted him. And he said, der Mann bleibt wo er ist. Hmm. A man stays where he is. So Benedict took the decision and Bertone then orchestrated the removal of Vigano. Oh, wow. He thought that Vigano 
was disruptive, was too, too honest. <laughs> and so Vigano protested, and around Benedict, this young uh, uh, assistant in the office there was receiving the mail, Paolo Gabriele, kind of the butler, opening some of the mail, found letters regarding Vigano's protest saying, I'm cleaning up the Vatican and you're now trying to remove me hmm. and send me to America to become nuncio, which is a very prestigious post, but it will make it impossible for me to complete the task I started. Hmm. Paolo Gabriele released these letters to the press. That was Vatty Leaks. That there are shenanigans going on to, but he wanted Pope Benedict in some way to be forced to understand the various currents that he, in a way, disliked even knowing about, trusting this other man who apparently, and it would have, we'd have to be fair, I haven't really spoken that much with Bertone, so I don't know his defense of what he chose to do. So I, it's not fair of me, but he apparently was not as faithful a, a servant of the Pope as he was of himself and of his other interests. Hmm. And Benedict then finally decided to send Vigano out of the Vatican to Washington and he sent him a note, which uh, I included in the book. It's mm -hmm. never been published before. The note said, after much reflection, I've decided to send you to America. I know that you have other views, but I believe that you will, in this way, fulfill a providential mission that goes beyond what I even can understand. So, Vigano told me when I went to meet with him about a year and a month ago, he'd been in hiding for a year and he called and said, I, I'd be willing to talk to you and explain why I wrote the testimony, how I see things now. And uh, I asked him about how he was forced out to Washington and how he now understood that. He said, you know, I'm beginning to have a sense that Benedict was prophetic, that he really he didn't know, but he was prophesying that I would have a providential mission, hmm. and I'm feeling that I do. <laughs> and he started to feel this mantle descending on him, not as someone who would cut the budget for the Christmas tree, but someone who would defend the doctrine of the church in a time of trendiness, in a time of superficiality, and in a time of tremendous pressure to become politically correct. Mm -hmm. And because he had dealt with hard-nosed businessmen, shaving 100,000 or adding 100,000, he was very familiar with that type of thing. He realized that doctrine, in a sense, could also be shaved or inflated. Mm -hmm. And in this way, we had a man of decision in financial matters and in government suddenly start to orient himself to the whole question of our doctrine. Mm -hmm. That is what the turning point was for Vigano. But as he meditated on these things and discussed them, 
we came one day, I said, so what does the church mean to you? In Rome, they call you the traitor, the Judas, because you've now spoken against corruption, named names. And his eyes got liquid, and he was silent. And then a tear started to fall down his cheeks. He said, the church was my whole life, and it is my whole life. In a way, he was making me understand that he was in the crucible of conscience. What do you do when in your conscience you say, I must speak out against something wrong, but in your heart you also feel, I must remain absolutely faithful to all those to whom I promised my service over decades. Those days that we were together, he was processing all of that. And as he came to the end, actually, there were two occasions. I, I, I left for a couple of three weeks, and then I came back and saw him again for several days. And he was becoming stronger. And he did, he did cry, he wept about Francis, about the way, I said, what about Francis? He said, well, when he was elected and when I first came to talk with him, I was totally committed to giving him the assistance he needed to be Peter, because I know that Peter always needs assistance. So I listened to what he wanted, and I told him what I think he, what I thought he needed to know. And that's when he told him about McCarrick. Mm -hmm. And that was the second time when he was speaking about Francis and how he committed himself at the beginning to his service. And then he, his eyes got watery again. He was silent. There were many silences. And then a tear again came down his cheek. And then there was a third occasion. And it had to do with then Cardinal McCarrick. Hmm. And he said... McCarrick came to me in the nunciature, and I, because Vigano had been in a desk in Rome in charge of all the Vatican diplomatic service. Mm -hmm. He had received reports from every nunciature in the world. They'd been checked by somebody, and then they reached his desk, and he would judge serious, not serious, and then send them on up right to the Secretary of State and then to the Pope. And so he had received reports about McCarrick in the early 2000s. So he had seen this. And he had sent a report in 2006 and 2008, and he said, there's a problem here. There's a cardinal with a beach house. He brings this, there's five beds. He brings five seminarians. And the first four get the four beds and then he says the fifth bed is mine but you can come join me and the seminarian would either agree or be faced with the problem of rejecting the cardinal in whose hands his entire ecclesial fate rested wow. this is the reason we consider it an abuse now 
nobody has ever fully studied exactly what happened. The rumors went around from the late 90s that this was happening, mm -hmm. that these were friendships, that these were whatever. I don't even know everything that happened. Someone could write to you or write to us and tell us more. There's been no trial. McCarrick has denied the worst types of abuse that we might imagine. He said, no, no, that didn't happen. I was just friendly. Yeah. So we don't know the whole truth, but he was then uh, accused in New York and on the 20th of June in 2018, they said these are credible allegations for the first time. And then suddenly he was said not to be. Prior to that, there had been this decision by Pope Benedict listening to Bertone and to what Vigano had said. He said, look, okay, what we're going to do is tell McCarrick he has to pray. He has to retire, no longer go publicly and do penance. But there was no turning over of anything to any authority, no criminal action, and no trial against him. So Sambi was the nuncio before Vigano. Mm -hmm. Pietro Sambi, a, de a dear friend of mine, actually. And I, I actually respected him enormously. And I was sh shocked when he died. I... Sambi was, as they negotiated in Rome to eject Vigano and send him to America, they were telling Sambi, now you're going to come back here and you're going to run Vatican finances. You're going to be the Pell. I think Sambi, from that position, Sambi was incredible. He was warm-hearted. He was smiling. He was strong. He had been in Israel for five years. He knew all about Israel and all about the Vatican's protection of the holy places agreements with the Israeli government. So he also knew the Middle East, important to know the Middle East. Then he knew America because he'd been in Washington. I think he might have been a candidate to become Pope. Hmm. But he had a slight cough and he went for a checkup in his lungs and he thought he was going to go in maybe for an afternoon. His family said, okay, well, we'll talk to you later this week. And he went in, he, he, they said, we're going to have to put you in the bed here, give an x-ray, said, you've got a little problem. I think we're going to have to do a little surgery, some problem. Mm -hmm. And he never came out, he died. Uh, His family was completely surprised. They didn't have any idea he was ill at all. So he never went back to Rome and he never was a candidate to become Pope. That was Sambi. Vigano took his place, but Sambi, a few months before he died, encountered McCarrick in the nunciature in Washington. And he said, McCarrick, Pope Benedict wants you to be very quiet, to pray, and to prepare for your final judgment, prepare mm -hmm. your soul. And McCarrick says, you know, I, no, I, I have this in plan and that plan, I'm doing it. And they were shouting. And uh, Monsignor Lantheam, down the hallway, in Vigano's testimony, reports that he told Vigano, when Vigano shows up a few months later, oh, Archbishop Vigano, I was here a few months ago when Zombie was telling McCarrick that he has to cool it. 
and there was a huge fight. They were shouting. I could hear them in the corridor. Oh. And Lanthiam has confirmed that. Lanthiam has now quit. I don't know what he's doing, but in Paris, after Vigano's testimony came out in 2018, somebody contacted him and said, is Vigano reliable or not? Did you actually hear that shouting in the hallway? He said, yes, I did. Hmm. And he said, now that I'm confirming that, I also want you to know that I don't like to go on lakes and rivers. So if you find my body in many pieces attached to blocks of cement in the bottom of a lake or a river, you'll know that I didn't do it. Hmm. In other words, he was saying that he feared that maybe there would be some consequences to him for confirming the fact that Sambi and McCarrick had a big fight over some sort of restrictions being placed on him. So then Vigano says, therefore, I called McCarrick in after having that conversation. And I said to McCarrick, look, you have to follow these restrictions. You did this about the seaside house. Mm -hmm. And McCarrick says to him, well, I may have made some bad judgments. Mm -hmm. I, yes, there was a seaside house. Yes, there were seminarians with me there. Yes, they're sharing a bed. Huh. And, and, and then Vigano said, I said, he said, therefore, you must follow these restrictions. And he said, but I was always respectful and kind of him because I wanted him to go through his problem, to pass through his problem. That was what my heart desired. I didn't want a public execution. I wanted him to repent. Yeah. And at that moment, his eyes, again, he was so deeply affected by his memory in a sense of failing in that conversation with McCarrick, that once again, he shed a tear. Yeah. It is an incredible thing, that deep love that Archbishop Vigano has, even for those it's funny, when the first revelations get revealed of McCarrick, um, and there's a lot of people in the know, some of the people who originally denied everything, uh, then once it became revealed, they were very, very harsh. You know, basically killed a man. But yet, Vigano, knowing more than just about anybody else about the subject, having even a partial confession from McCarrick himself, has this great loving desire to see the man repent and face his creator in repentance is a truly Catholic attitude. And the emotion uh, you described that he, he presents is, is one born of that love and of a great forgiveness and of charity that goes beyond what most people have. It, it's the, the same kind of charity that Pope John Paul II expressed going to visit his own uh, attempted murderer uh, in the prison and giving him forgiveness. is an incredible thing. This heart of a man who comes forward now to defend the faith, to defend the church, and also in a way, and, and I'd like to hear your take on this, in a way to defend Francis himself. What you have just said is of extreme importance. I totally agree. The idea of the soul is the central concept that we are not just a 97 sense of chemicals. 
briefly and by chance here, but there is meaning. There is reason to our lives. And the Greek word is logos. When John's gospel begins, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That's the beginning of the gospel of John, and he's referring to Christ, the word of God. The Greek word logos can mean reason or meaning. So we could say in the beginning was the meaning, and the meaning was with God, and the meaning was God. When we have a soul, when we are physical creatures animated by a mysterious personhood, which we call the soul, we have an eternal destiny. My, my formation was that this was the central thing, and this is why the church says the supreme law of the church is the salvation of souls. But the supreme law also of our society is to defend the very concept that we have souls. Mm -hmm. It's considered in polite society something terrible. All they want is easeful deaths for the concept of the soul, and they'll, they say, we will then have peace. Mm -hmm. You don't have any uh, transcendental horizon. That's pie in the sky. You have no profound ground of being which is connected to the very origin of all things in the universe, the almighty God creator. But our faith is that we are connected. We are willed to exist. And therefore, we are in a moral universe where we have to choose. This is why we are greater than any computer. No computer is any able and um, People say this can be overcome. No compute. However, I disagree. Right? I've never been persuaded. Computers are programmed. They do what they are programmed to do. We are free. But all of our social leadership, all of the politically correct, mouthing the word freedom, would like to take that freedom from us. And the greatest freedom is that we have an eternal dimension, an eternal soul. There's a writer named Walker Percy. I studied his work. I met him. I wrote my senior thesis in college at Harvard College on the writing of Walker Percy mm -hmm. and the predicament of modern man. And what was the predicament? A quotation that he put in front of his book, um, The Message in the Bottle. It's a great work by Walker Percy. It's about semiotics and the meaning of words and how the meaning of words is a first step towards the meaning of the faith, the logos. The very fact that we use words show that we're on a level of meaning. Christ is meaning incarnate, the word incarnate. Well, the quotation is this, so low they had fallen that they no longer considered themselves beings with sufficient dignity even to be damned. Hmm. In other words, we are like soap bubbles with no profound dignity if we don't have this moral dimension, yes and no, I choose yes, I choose to sacrifice. All love comes from sacrifice. Christ's sacrifice redeemed the universe. Your sacrifice as a father, anything that would impede your carrying out your role, you sacrifice. And if you don't, you harm your role 
each of us has to. Sacrifice produces love, produces life. You get up at two or three in the morning to give your child who's crying maybe some, some milk to drink. You take time to instruct them. You even, within limits, will direct through even, uh, you're going to have to be punished for this so that you form them. You're forming a soul. But our society, because it has no concept that we have souls, allows us to run a kind of free path to fall into addiction, to fall into every sort. Okay, you are free to choose. This is dereliction of paternity and dereliction of maternity. And the ultimate maternal is Mary and is the church. The church is the teacher of mankind and says, you're going to end up in misery if you take this path. All the hierarchy is here to do is to save souls, to protect them from falling in to a type of unrepentant despair, that there is any meaning, there is any possibility of God's forgiveness. Along these lines, Francis has sometimes said good and important things. But Vigano also has said good and important things. I have wished, I have long wished that they could re- meet together and talk, and one could forgive the other, and they, Francis could say, I would like to be the Peter that I was elected to be. Vigano is saying, you've become a successor of Peter that is produced by the Sangalan mafia, and therefore you are falling short of the very vocation to which you are called. Now, these are heavy words. Some may be astonished that I dare to speak them. But having watched the problems of John Paul II, the problems of Benedict, and now this pontificate, having a great desire to stand against the trendy annihilation of souls that the modern modernists and the trendiness of pop psychology which dominates our time, I am hoping to make a contribution to the defense of the faith, the defense of the soul, defense of human beings, and to the possible repentance and uh, arrival at beatitude of all who have fallen short. Mm -hmm. I think this is the Christian vocation. I try to carry it out in my writing. Absolutely. Very, very beautiful. I, if I might say in, in closing, Dr. Monahan, you know, of, I was, I was told, as you might know, of uh, many of Archbishop Vigano's revelations before they went public. I heard them and he said, look into these. He wasn't public with them yet, so there was no way to use him as a source. And yet it was impossible as you can imagine, because where do you go? But in all the world, honestly, I I believe in all the world, there was one person who could probably corroborate better than just about anyone else much of Vigano's testimony, and it happened to be you. A journalist who has been there for decades, who's been able to meet, greet, speak with, converse with, and learn from, Many of the figures whom Vigano reveals in his writings would 
for whom most of us are, you know, if we know a lot about it, are just merely a figure who we learned a little bit about. You've had the unique opportunity to be able to at least be on the way to corroborating any parts of his testimony like no one else ever could. Uh, in, in a way, um, I not meaning to denigrate your, your uh, career at all, but in a way, I think you were chosen for this specific role. And the fact that it's cost you so much, I think, is only greater evidence of that. On behalf of, uh, of LifeSite, on behalf of Catholics everywhere, I want to thank you for what you've done, this great contribution, I believe, to the Church. Well, thank you, John Henry. I, I'm just a humble servant in the vineyard of the Lord, as Pope Benedict said when he came out on the loggia, the first words he spoke. He said that's what he was. And he said in his first speech something I'd like to repeat. Please pray for me that I do not flee for fear of the wolves. Amen. Well, let me, on behalf of our uh, viewers, say that we will pray for you, Dr. Moynihan, and uh, I very much look forward to having you again on the show and going through with you much of what you have to give to us, to the whole Catholic world. Again, thank you for joining us in this episode of the John Henry Weston Show. God bless you, and God bless all of you, and we'll see you next time. Hello, this is John Henry Weston. I'd like to invite you to subscribe to the John Henry Weston Show YouTube channel if you haven't already done so. There you will find all the past episodes and much more. Thanks again for watching, and may God bless you.